Have you noticed that the Torah regularly refers to the land of Israel as Eretz Canaan? Why? This is Rabbi Yitzchak Price with another episode of Tachlis Talks, growth-oriented, partial-related, usually, Torah podcasts. Our uh, podcast today, this episode, is not particularly tied to the Parsha, although we will hopefully note at least one element of connection, but really more about how we look at the land of Israel, having been there just a few weeks ago, having friends who are currently there, a few who are currently in transit on the way to get there, on my mind, as Israel should always be, and the Torah's focus on the land of Israel, never calling it Eretz Israel, but Eretz Canaan, is of intrigue. Now, the Canaanites certainly were one of the nations inhabiting the land, not the only nation. Ten nations inhabiting what is greater Israel, seven inhabiting the territory that we conquer upon entry to the land of Israel in the time of Yeshua, of Joshua. Canaan, maybe they were more dominant, uh, more significant in some ways, but why continue to call the land, even when addressing that we're going to go to the land, we're going to conquer the land? So call it the land of Israel, our land. Why Eretz Canaan? And commentaries share several themes related to the word Canaan as it applies outside of the proper noun of the person and the nation Canaan. Earlier in the book of Bereshus, of Genesis, after the sale of Yosef, Yehuda, Judah, leaves the brothers and marries a woman who's described as a daughter of a Canaani. Rashi over there indicates that it's hard to imagine that Yehuda would be marrying a Canaanite after knowing that his ancestors went out of the way to see that they married women other than Canaanites, and understands that the term means a merchant. He married the daughter of a merchant. In fact, the oldest translation of the Torah into Aramaic, the Unculus translates this word Canaani as tagar, tagra, a merchant. The word Canaani means a merchant. Now, outside of Canaan being the name of the grandson of Noah who founded a, a nation eventually called the Canaanites, if the word means a merchant, that may be teaching us a lesson about how to relate to the land of Israel. And I believe it's Rav Moshe Shapiro, blessed memory, who shared that we should view the land as a merchant between ourselves and God. What is the role of the merchant? The merchant bridges, connects consumer and producer, buyer and seller. And generally, once connecting them, the merchant doesn't play a significant ongoing role, or certainly as far as we we look at the deal, we don't focus a lot. How many of you remember the name of each of the people who ever sold you a car? Yes, they played a significant role in the moment, but the ultimate goal was that you would purchase a car if that happened without hopefully too much trouble and negotiating, then you ended up with the car and the merchant kind of disappears into the background, but they did their job, got their commission, and the deal's a deal. The land of Israel facilitates elements of our relationship with God, of our achievement and our bonding with God. There are several mitzvahs that can only be done in the land of Israel or regarding the produce of the land of Israel. But aside from that, our commentary has described that all mitzvahs are more powerful, more potent. There is a greater effect when the mitzvahs are done in the land of Israel. And hence it is serving as a bridge of sorts, a merchant between ourselves 
in God. Another message in the word Kana'an, the Hebrew term Hachna'a, the same root, the Kaf Nun Ayin, Kana, Hachna'a, is a term of subservience. And subservience, humbling before God, is a critical ingredient if we are to merit the land of Israel. Araparsha Korach is the antithesis of that, stands up against Moshe. If he has a challenge, he has an issue, there's way, there are ways to ask Moshe to humbly approach Moshe, but the opposite. He is determined that, by, that he's going to sever his tie, the, the distance, the lack of subservience, the vayikach, that opening verb, he takes, what does he take? Not even clear in the text Rashi describes, he's taking himself apart, moving away. That is somebody who cannot yield to the authority and ultimately suffers so significantly as a result. For us to merit having the land of Israel, we need to be the opposite. And last week's parsha is Shlach, when the spies are meant to be agents of Moshe and God in their seeking out the land. But as soon as they plug in some of their own agenda, some of their own determination as to what role they'd like to play, they're no longer subservient and veer far off course. Some look at the terminology when it says that they lifted the fruit to bring it back home, as hinting to the fact that they lifted themselves, that an air of of elevating themselves over the role of simply being the agent of Moshe to now being independent. Ironically, they also talk in a manner that shows a lack of self-esteem when they describe that the, the others were so large and they viewed us as so small. We didn't have any quotes from any of the very powerful people in the land of Canaan about these spies. We don't have their dialogue, and yet they projected that they view us as being small, they view us as being like ants. Well, ironically, it can be because of the fact that they were haughty and they were feeling independent of Moshe and of God and feeling that we have our own mission, our own agenda. Well, once that's the case, then they're no longer functioning as agents of God and therefore they lose all of the real sense of worth that they should have had. And if we're not agents of God, then whoa, what are the chances of us managing to be successful over here? And they end up viewing themselves now as being weak and meek and petty due to the fact that in their haughtiness, they severed their tie from God and detached from their true mission. Interestingly, when responding to them, Kalev and and Yehoshua, the two good spies, describe, you've got it wrong. This land is tova ha'aretz. The land is good. Ma'od, ma'od. Much. Super much. Ma'od, ma'od. To the max. But really, to the max, to the max. A term that is not used a lot in the Torah. Maybe a handful of times we have the expression of something being ma'od, ma'od. In Mishnah, in Pirkei Avos, the term is also used ma'od, ma'od. I haven't done a search to see how common this is, but I think it's pretty uncommon. And Pirkei Avos commentaries point to the fact that in Pirkei Avos it describes the trait of humility is something where we have to be ma'od, ma'od. Ma'od, ma'od have a ruach. You should be of a humble, low spirit. Ma'od, ma'od. The ma'od, ma'od that Yeshua and Kali were expressing about the land requires the ma'od, ma'od we can achieve, we can conquer, we can be part of the story if we are absolutely subservient to God and let Him run the show.
our merit to the land of Kina'an requires that hachna'ah, that sense of subservience and humility that allows us to view it, okay, Hashem, if this is the best place for me, this is where I'm going to follow you, and I'm not concerned about how that's going to be manifest. The land of Israel, certainly a land that we should appreciate, the land that we have access to that was, for hundreds of years, uh, almost unreachable, and uh, often even the greatest of sages that, that tried it, the great Vilnagon, who attempted the move to Israel, never actually made it there. Many others did after major difficulty and found a land that was so sparse, so difficult to, to survive. In that land, we have it so much easier. I had come across just a few days ago a description. I'm over here in Cincinnati, Ohio, on the opposite end of the state. We're in the southwestern corner. The northeastern corner of the state is Cleveland, Ohio. In one subpart of Cleveland, Ohio, there's a little neighborhood called Wycliffe, Ohio, which is home to the Tells Yeshiva. Tells was a town in Lithuania, a whole community of Tells destroyed by the Nazis and replanted here in the United States, in Cleveland, Ohio, and in Chicago, and then other branches that developed as uh, kind of derivative branches elsewhere. But the Rosh Yeshiva, the head of the Yeshiva, for many years in Cleveland, Ohio, Rav Gifter, Rav Mordechai Gifter, was briefly in the land of Israel, Tells Yeshiva created a yeshiva or an attempt at making a new yeshiva in what was called Tells Town, like Tells Town, not far from Jerusalem, and big thriving community in Tells Town uh, to this day. But Rav Gifter was there for just a few years and called back to Cleveland when the Rosh Yeshiva at that time had passed away and he was needed back here in the States. It was a very difficult decision on his part. He was so attached to the land, he went to of the greatest Torah sages of the last generations, uh, the Stipler Gaon, Rav Kanievsky, the father of Rav Chaim Kanievsky, who passed away just a few years ago, and uh, the Stipler, Rav Yisrael, Yaakov Kanievsky, told him he was needed back in America, he had to go back there. Fascinatingly, Rav Gifter refused to move into a private home as he had lived in prior to going to Israel. He moved into an apartment in the dormitory, because he felt that I want to remind myself that I'm not home as long as I'm back on this side of the ocean. My home should be in Israel. I have to leave Israel because it's so important for me to be here. But he felt that I'm suffering a personal element of the exile right now, and he lived in a dorm apartment. In fact, it wasn't even carpeted like the rest of the dorm wasn't carpeted until a few students came up with a means of trying to almost trick him into allowing that there be carpeting to make their home more comfortable, uh, come up with other arguments why it was necessary, but he was trying to live an exceedingly modest, hachna'ah type of a life, of, of great humility and great sense of, of distance, uh, of, of personal exile uh, in that current mode. Rav Gifter, his students describe when he did live in Israel, Telstone was at a distance from Jerusalem, but in certain parts of Telstone, you could look at the city of Jerusalem. And he would at times go position himself at that side of Telstone and look at Jerusalem and weep. He felt for the fact that we are currently in an exile mode, and even with Jerusalem, Baruch Hashem, thank God we have access, but still far from the ultimate glorious 
Jerusalem with the temple restored, and he was very emotionally attached both to the city of Yerushalayim and the reality of the fact that Jerusalem is not as splendid as it was meant to be and as it will, please God, in the near future be. Closing element, I've uh, been traveling to Israel just uh, about, I guess it was six weeks back now, I had purchased for the trip a work, uh, the... Sorry if you got a little click over there. I decided to uh, look up the name of the book so I could recommend it. I picked up a book by Rabbi Moshe Wolfson, who's a phenomenal uh, Torah thinker and scholar and guide living in New York. And he wrote a book, actually, it was um, really a book transcribed from many of his lectures by um, Mrs. Bela Vorhand, a book called Sacred Soil, a guided tour through Eretz Israel. And in his Sacred Soil, he shared lot of inspiration about his living in Israel, traveling to Israel, the cities of, of the land of Israel, and uh, just to close our thoughts here on our relationship with the land and the humility we have to have to manage to merit having this land, he quotes over there a Medrash that Moshe, Moses himself, asked God for the opportunity to be in the land of Israel, and once God had said an absolute no, okay, I can't go in as the leader, I can't even go in as a man on the street. Let me go in as an animal. Let me go in as a bird that can fly over the territory. And God said, no, there are reasons why you have to be buried outside of the land of Israel. Ultimately, that serves us well uh, in terms of Moshe's presence there. That's for a whole different discussion. But we see Moshe's eagerness, that, that absolute humility. Let me go in even if it's in another form rather than that of, of Moshe, of a leader, of even a mensch, even a person, and the recognition of the sacred soil, he quotes over there that the Hasidic leader known as the Bas Ayin, who traveled to the land of Israel, had been told that the earth of the land of Israel glitters. He didn't notice that. He saw the land of Israel, could not perceive that, and he describes over there how, I think it was the students of the Bas Ayin recorded that he went into a period of intense service of God, super devotion, super focus on spiritual development, after which he felt he was capable of recognizing this unique quality about the land. So, for any of us who've been there and didn't quite notice all the earth glittering, but we know that with the proper perspective we can gain greater appreciation. And whether it's in that type of very sublime, miraculous or even simply the appreciation that we have for the fact we have access to this territory. And in so doing, in taking on the humility, the hachna'a message of Canaan, we can also then hopefully use the land as that other message of the merchant role that it will have to facilitate our closeness to God. And all be a counterforce uh, in terms of our um, not steering away from God, from the Torah that he has provided us and from the leadership that he's provided us, not fail as a Korach did so radically, but rather achieve the greatness that comes from that attachment to God, to the Torah, and to his land.